Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. At first glance, Neil Fursden's CV looks like many other detective senior sergeants. He worked in the drug squad, tactical investigation group and the usual inner city CIBs. But the former Victoria Police member decided to expand his horizons. Neil was seconded to PNG to help create a drug squad. He worked in general policing in the Pacific Islands and dealt with human trafficking in Bangladesh. Neil also worked in Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, Vietnam and Indonesia with AusAid, USAID and the United Nations. Hi Neil and welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks Rochelle. When I read your CV, I'm surprised you didn't join the AFP. Why did you join Victoria Police? I came to Victoria Police because my dad was a uh, former sergeant at Rutherglen and uh, I joined the job in Victoria uh, at the age of 18. The Working overseas came to me later in life. Um, I'd been working, as you said, uh, in the various squads around the city uh, and uh, in the bush. And an opportunity came up to work in Papua New Guinea. So I said to my wife, uh, we had a a six-month-old baby at that stage, uh, how would you like to live in PNG? She agreed. So I applied and was accepted, and uh, we ended up in the, the highlands of Papua New Guinea in a place called Garoka. Garoka is renowned for the quality of um, the cannabis there, and the cannabis was funding a lot of the uh, internal fighting in PNG, so they wanted to be able to respond to that. So I went there for two years, enjoyed the experience, enjoyed working with police in another culture, it was, uh, for me, it was very enlightening. And we came back and as a result of that, I decided that I would take some tertiary studies in international development and put my CV out and see what, uh, so what would come up. And uh, eventually some opportunities uh, came up. VicPol were, were very, very kind to me. They uh, allowed me to go. They allowed me to go to PNG on leave of their pay. An opportunity come up to work in Fiji in a Australian government DFAT program working with police agencies in 14 countries around the Pacific. Again, I moved my family again and we lived in Suva, which was a great experience. But working uh, with the different police agencies, there were various levels of uh, training. Some were quite small. Nui had a police of um, police force of 12. Samoa Solomons had larger police forces and various types of training. So it uh, was an interesting to get involved in those people. What attracted you initially? You're working at VicPol, you see this a common in PNG, a lot of police members would stay where they were and I suppose do the conservative choice, which is stay in Australia. What attracted you to that secondment to PNG? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I'm not really sure. I, I don't know where I got my gypsy blood from. I was very fortunate I had a very supportive wife. I had a very supportive police agency in VicPol allowing me to go. 
And once I got involved, it was very, very fulfilling for me to see the results of some of the work we did. In uh, PNG, I was part of a, a much larger contingent. They were doing a wide range of different police programs funded by the Australian government. So I was working as part of a team, but uh, my specific job, as I said, was to set up the drug squad and provide training. How would you describe this PNG role? You, you're brought in. What were the challenges in establishing a, a drug squad in PNG? Well, as with any developing country, it, uh, you're working with uh, police who have got very, very basic training, very basic education. They're v- invariably working on different legislation to what we are. Their access to equipment is also very limited. So we must, first of all, take very small steps to start providing them. In PNG and specifically, I was able to send two sergeants to work with the drug squad in Victoria. They were there for a month and they were involved in all aspects of the investigations in Victoria. They came back and the change was incredible. The way they were handling their investigations, briefings, developing intelligence, the change was incredible. And that that exposure for them, they brought back that back to PNG. Working in a number of Pacific Islands in general policing, Neil, how would you describe policing in these sorts of countries and cultures? Well, the Pacific's uh, it's a big area and there's uh, different types. There's the Polynesians, the Melanesians and, and how they respond within their culture. They're a lot smaller. The police are part of the community, a lot more part of the community. So they're pretty reluctant to actually enforce the law, which is understandable. But as long as they do it in a fair and frank way and work with the community, and that was probably the biggest thing that we did, was getting them to work as part of the community, work with community leaders and respond to issues as they come up. For example, sexual assault in the Pacific was quite, quite big and that led on to youth suicide. So getting them to uh, investigate those things properly, investigate the suicide to try and identify the reasons behind the uh, youth suicide and passing that back into the community so the community were able to respond to that. You must have had some pretty extraordinary experiences when you're working in these countries. Any specific sorts of stories stick in your mind? The big change for me was when I went with the UN to work in uh, in Bangladesh. Poverty there was extreme. My role there was to work with the Bangladesh police, part of their human traffic response. Now, human trafficking in Bangladesh is massive because of the extreme poverty. A lot of people were being trafficked into various countries around the Asia-Pacific area, particularly up into the into Qatar and, and those areas on building sites. The people would go with wide eyes, hoping they were going to make a lot of money to bring back to their family, and invariably that was dashed. The money they had to pay to go into these opportunities had to be paid back. Some of the, um, the men that worked in the uh, building industry um, in the Arab countries, uh, had to pay seven thousand US dollars just to be accepted to go over there. So they had to pay that back. So they were their uh, passports would be taken from them. Their uh, their living conditions were appalling. Uh, their working conditions were appalling, and invariably um, they'd come back with far less money than they thought. At one stage there in Bangladesh, two thousand people a day were leaving the country to go and work in building sites. In the other other side with the women. 
were in, involved in um, in the garment industry, working in India and other locations. Again, the uh, young young people were being used in the garment industry in relation to fine cotton work. Young girls were required in those areas, and they were basically set off, paid by the the workers to go, and that would invariably impact on their uh, on their lifestyle. I remember in Nepal, there was a lot of young girls and boys were being sent to India to work in the circus hands, and they were set off. But when they were eventually rescued, they were brought back, and they knew no other skill because they went there when they were young, eight, nine, ten-year-old. So many of them would then return back to what they knew. And likewise, when I worked in Laos and Myanmar, a lot of the women there that were being trafficked into sexual servitude invariably would return back or be rescued and return back to Myanmar or to their homes in Laos. Then they were ostracised because they were seen to be prostitutes. So the only thing they could then do was to return and go back into the sex trade again. It's a very sad thing, getting the police to respond to that because the police know that they are doing it because of the poverty. So it's, it's hard to get them to respond. I remember one incident in Myanmar a young girl was trafficked into a nightclub where the men would come in and put garlands around their, uh, in their head and, uh, so they could take them away. And one young girl rescued by an NGO and she was only uh, 10 or 11. The police I was working with, they went and rescued her. She was taken back and the, the owner of the nightclub was charged and, uh, and the mother was interviewed because she actually paid, uh, got, received money. For About three or four months later, I was with the police talking to them about the case and uh, I said, what happened to that young girl? And they said that she is back in the nightclub. And I said, why? You can't allow that. She said, well, she's got to, got to uh, earn money to live. So that's the reality of what we have to work with. And that, to me, was very, very hard to accept. And that's the reality of the poverty in these countries. How were you perceived, Neil, as a, a white Anglo-Saxon male from Australia coming in with obvious extensive experience and skills and more money, how were you perceived in these countries? Obviously, to start off with, you, you can't be judgmental. You can't look down and say, oh, you, you, you're not doing a very good job here. In many cases, right across the Pacific and in Asia, that many cases they had not been exposed to training and they, they really looked forward to getting some form of training. Now, what we know is that if someone doesn't know what to do, they'll walk away. So if if someone comes up to a policeman in Myanmar and wants him to respond and he doesn't know how to do it, he says, go away, it's not my job. So it's about providing training and giving experience to them, giving them support. I was involved in a lot of mentoring of, um, of uh, investigations in Myanmar uh, and the, to watch them uh, expand their uh, investigation ability was quite satisfying. And likewise with uh, prosecutors, they then became involved Unfortunately, with Myanmar now, with, uh, with the coup that's happened there, I hope those things are being continued, but I'm not real sure. So that's, that's the issue about international development. You turn the ship a little bit, and sometimes it turns back the other way. Poverty and corruption are huge issues in these countries, often involving the authorities themselves. Do you have to understand those sorts of issues before you tackle them? There was a saying that I got told very early, there's, um, there's corruption for need and corruption for greed. In a lot of the countries, particularly in Bangladesh, 
uh, and Myanmar, there's no money to conduct investigations. So if a person came in to report a crime, the police would often say, well, I need money to put in gas into my motorbike so I can go to the scene to investigate your crime. So that's corruption for, through need. But obviously there's a lot of corruption through greed. That is right through the system. Many have to pay to get certain positions. That's just the reality of, of Asia. Neil, how did you personally deal with what you saw? Because I'd imagine there'd be a, a lot of things you couldn't unsee. Yeah, that's true. A lot of it you just sort of uh, work through it. I mean, it's good to work with the police. I, I must admit, police, no matter where you go in the world, are all very, very similar. And uh, even though a lot of times I couldn't talk with them because of the language barrier, they understood that my background was police. I was there to try and assist them. So they would tell me in the end what they were seeing. And uh, some of it were quite shocking. That young girl I spoke about in the nightclub, you know, that, that was incredible, incredibly sad. But the reality was she had to live, the mother had to live. That's the thing, that the poverty is uh, all prevailing. What are the achievements in these countries, in these third world countries, what are the achievements you're most proud of? Part of the program in, in Asia, the Australian government funded trafficking project. Uh, we worked in um, eight countries, in, from Indonesia, Cambodia, all the way through. We eventually were able to establish six monthly uh, meetings between countries so they could discuss their cases because one country like Myanmar would be where the victims come from and another country like Thailand or Malaysia is where they go to. So to be able to work sharing intelligence, sharing information about suspects across borders was, was vital to that. And in the end, we were starting to get some very, very good results. There's one case I remember... We spoke about it. There was uh, from the northern part of Myanmar, a place called Tachalik. The girls were being sold into Thailand. They were being shipped down to through Thailand and into Malaysia and into brothels. Now, through a, a series of these meetings, we were able to identify a number of the, uh, the suspects. And uh, the investigation started in the hills of Myanmar, where the, the policewoman in charge of the trafficking unit in Tachalik walked for a, for a day up into the hills to identify a number of the parents who had their children in Malaysia. She was able to get sufficient information. That was passed on to the Thai, and the Thai police eventually passed it on to the Malaysian police, and a number of girls were rescued from brothels in, in Malaysia. Now, that was a um, through three countries, and that was because of the way they could... Uh, the trust that they could build up between the various countries to talk about each other. Another big one was in relation to the fishing industry. Men were going on to fishing boats for three months at a time, or so they believed, fishing in the Thailand Sea. But many, many never returned. Many were just left on the boat. Another boat would come out. They moved onto the boat, another boat. So many were out to sea for 12 months, never getting off the boat. If they got sick, they were rolled into the sea. Now, that was a massive number of men were found in parts of Indonesia who were trafficked out of uh, Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos. That involved uh, the Thai fishing industry and the Indonesian fishing industry. Now, from that, the ASEAN, which is like the UN uh, in, uh, in Asia, were able to um, put strict 
conditions in on how boats could be manned, how the people who worked on them could be uh, should be brought back uh, regularly. So the trafficking there was uh, was massive. As a result of these meetings we were able to have, we were able to identify six or seven captains of these boats and they were initially charged with, with human trafficking. What's the saddest memory, Neil, that has stuck with you? When, when you're living in third world countries, there is an expectation that you, uh, you, you do hire a mate. There was a young, young girl in, in Dhaka that, uh, who I hired through, through the, uh, the landlord. She spoke reasonably good English, but she was one of three girls. In the culture in, in Bangladesh is that the female has to pay the male to get married. Runa, was, she was a third of three girls. Her family were in dire straits because they couldn't afford to. One day, Runa came and saw me and said, I'm leaving, I'm going over to Lebanon to work as a housemaid. And I said, Runa, it's not a good place to go. So at that time, I had a very good relationship with a number of lawyers, uh, female lawyers in Dhaka. So I rang them and they spoke to Runa and uh, said, look, you're going over there and it's not going to be a, a good result. You're not going to be a maid, you're going to be something else. But Runa said that uh, she had to go because uh, the parents had already paid the money. So she left and I never saw her again. So I often think about her and uh, that's the reality of poverty again. What did your international experience teach you? Oh, Australia's a great place. <laughs> I um, yeah, become very wide-eyed about things. You, you, you look at it differently. I mean, I, I keep mentioning poverty. Poverty is a really big issue in relation to human trafficking but having said that in the Pacific they have poverty there as well but it's a different lifestyle the police are very happy people get on very well with the police because they come from the village but in the bigger countries such as uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar the police uh, are seen as the enemy they're not trusted because of the corruption because of the lack of training providing the assistance that many countries do in these countries is a good thing it's going to take a long, long time to get them to respond well. But at least the countries allow, allow us to go in there and work with them. In Myanmar, the uh, very high-ranking police, we, we got on very well with them. They, they understood what we're trying to do. To this day, I still stay in contact with a lot of them, uh, particularly in Bangladesh. The women is another thing. Allowing women to get involved in uh, investigations was one of the things that we were able to bring forward. In Myanmar, again, I was able to train 25 young women in human trafficking investigations and from that I provided, with a, with a, a prosecutor, we were able to provide them with skills to respond to human trafficking. The senior officers within the Myanmar police also saw that as a good thing and supported them and uh, there was a number of really, really interesting investigations that they were able to get involved in from a female perspective, whereas before it was only a male perspective. Neil, has this work overseas, which you've worked most of your job as a police member in an overseas capacity, has it left you with restlessness and a desire to keep travelling? <laughs> it certainly has. I, uh, I've just come back from a month in, uh, in Asia. I, I love travelling to Asia. I, I know my two boys uh, have got that travel bug now as well as a result. And that's the other good thing about, from my perspective, is being able to expose my boys to living overseas, uh, living in different cultures, being far more able to accept different people in different ways that, uh, and understanding that 
that they've had a very good life and have been able to work with these people. And they've still got some very good friends overseas. How do you view your policing career now? Oh, I look back on it quite fondly. You know, I, I was fortunate to uh, work with some very good team members in, in the various squads, uh, the drug squad and, and the tackling investigation group. Uh, we worked on some pretty high-profile jobs and uh, I look back on those with fondness. I'm now meeting some of the old colleagues now and we relive those tales and our roles get bigger and bigger and it's good to look back on that. As I said before, Vic Pol was very good to me. I thoroughly enjoyed the lifestyle. It's just one of those jobs, amazing experience, and it's allowed me to travel overseas and use my skills to help other, other police. And finally, Neil, how's retirement and what's next for you? Whilst I like going overseas, I was uh, talking to buying a caravan. Now I'm in the process of getting a caravan. I've got, I've got a grandson and another one on the way. Unfortunately, my wife passed away three years ago. Yeah, so uh, that was a bit of a change in my lifestyle. But, yeah, it's, life's good. Life's good. So uh, it's good to catch up with all the old colleagues and, as I say, relive our, our past glories. Well, thank you very much for sitting with me on the Crime Couch today, Neil. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch. Mm-hmm.